we had fans coming to meetings saying to us organize a boycott walk out to football matches just stop going boycott a game give up a ticket you scrimped and saved for that's what irate liverpool fans were telling james mckenna He's the chairperson of Spirit of Shankly, a group of politicised Liverpool supporters, named after former manager Bill Shankly, a Scottish ex-player from a mining village whose sporting and political ethos still shapes Liverpool Football Club today. The big thing I think most people know our name for is on ticket prices. Back in 2016, the club's owners, Fenway Sports Group and their management, hiked the price of a match ticket to £77, a 30% increase. Spirit of Shankly's riposte was brilliant. These are thousands of Liverpool fans walking out in the 77th minute. At a match against Sunderland, 10,000 fans got up and walked out in a coordinated protest with a very simple message. There was no shortage of media coverage. But you're pricing certain people out the, out the game then, and I think that's wrong. In the final minutes of the game, Liverpool conceded their two-goal lead to Sunderland, and four days later, the owners caved in. Football's a global game now, and with that comes vast riches. How do we make it affordable, but also how do we make it fair? I'm David Goldblatt and this is Game of Our Lives and today we're getting out of the studio and on the road, the M6 to be precise, the motorway that took me north to Liverpool, a city in England like no other, always unusual, rebellious, defiant and unrepentantly working class and it's the kind of place where football fans take on their team's owners and demand fairness, transparency, equality and sometimes they even win. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. That's Bill Shankly, with his tongue at least half in his cheek. Wit is a central element of the man's legacy to Liverpool Football Club. But it's his politics that really interests me. Life and death may be his most famous aphorism, but a better guide to his influence on the club is my favourite. The socialism I believe in is everyone working for each other, everyone having a share of the rewards. It's the way I see football, the way I see life. That sense of sharing rooted in the solidarity of fandom. Can it still survive in contemporary, commercial Liverpool Football Club? That's what I went to Liverpool to find out. You feel as if you're a member of a big society where you've got thousands of friends all around about you and they're united and loyal. People... You know, look at Bill Shankly and the way he spoke of the fans as being so important. James McKenna from Spirit of Shankly again. And it's not just Liverpool that was touched by Shankly. In British football, he is remembered as everything a manager or a gaffer was meant to be. A working class autodidact, as steeped in the cultures of the factory and the mine as of the training ground and the football pitch. When Shankly arrived in 1959, Liverpool was actually the second club of the city. Everton was both older and more successful. This was about to change. Over the next 15 years of Shankly's reign, both the city and Liverpool FC were transformed. The city's cultural renaissance produced the Beatles and the Merseybeat Poets. Liverpool won the league, the FA Cup and the UEFA Cup. 
and the extraordinary crowd culture of the cop was born, fusing city, pop culture and football club. I've never seen anything like this Liverpool crowd. The music the crowd sings is the music that Liverpool has sent echoing around the world. Shankly described the way his teams played as a form of folk socialism, an essentially collective practice built on solidarity, mutuality and cooperation between players, of course, and between the club and its fans, a notion that endures. He famously said there was a holy trinity. Jay McKenna. Which was the supporters, the players and the manager and the, and the directors were there just to sign the checks. Liverpool won the FA Cup final in 1974. After the game, Shankly addressed a huge crowd in Liverpool city centre. I've drummed it into our players time and again that they are privileged to play for you. As all these hundreds of thousands of supporters had turned out to greet the team and he said, you know, he said like, you know, he'd always said to his players they should be proud to play for Liverpool and if they didn't believe and him, if they didn't believe me, they believe him now. They believe me now. And that was that. The 1974 FA Cup final was Shankly's last game in charge. Inexplicably, he retired and he would find out just how important football could be. Suffering the meaningless drift of life without work, he died early in 1981. But in terms of personnel and style, he left behind a deep well of footballing and cultural capital that stood Liverpool in good stead. Under his successors, the club would go on to win four European Cups in the 1970s and 1980s. But it was the legacy of solidarity that the club would need most. Dozens of soccer fans have been injured and it's feared some killed when they were crushed by overcrowding at the FA Cup semi-final match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest this afternoon at Hillsborough in Sheffield. I watched the Hillsborough tragedy unfold on television. I was sitting in my parents' living room in 1989, looking forward on a Saturday afternoon to that rare thing, live football back in those days. Interesting that the crowd has uh, spilled over onto the perimeter there. There was a crush. People fell forward, and the devastating result, without any question at all, serious injury to a lot of people. 96 people died. Uh, but there's no question now that the, that the problem was caused by non-ticket holders forcing their way through a broken gate. It was obvious that it wasn't the fans. You could see that the only people running onto the pitch to help were other fans. You know, when you see two guys with Liverpool scarves carrying an advertising board that they've turned into an impromptu stretcher, something's wrong. I had no idea at the time how bad the policing had been. I had no idea that there was a cover-up. Hillsborough was a series of institutional failures followed by a cover-up of the highest order. Hillsborough pitted victims and their families against a complacent judiciary and corrupt police forces. The ramifications of that case are still working their way through the British courts. In addition, they had to face a mendacious popular press, most especially Rupert Murdoch's The Sun, which aided and abetted a police cover-up. The Murdoch papers got it all wrong and they just fed exactly what the police said to them. I mean, there was extraordinary collaboration to make sure there was one story put out. It was the worst thing we ever did as a newspaper. It was our deepest shame. 
Fans of both Liverpool and Everton combined to organise a boycott of the Sun on Merseyside. And to this day, nearly 30 years later, it is almost impossible to buy a copy of the Sun in Liverpool. The representatives of the victims' families and their many allies in Liverpool finally forced the new independent inquiry into the tragedy. It is right for me today, as Prime Minister, to make a proper apology to the families of the 96. These families have suffered a double injustice. The injustice of the appalling events, the failure of the state to protect their loved ones, and the indefensible wait to get to the truth, and then the injustice of the denigration of the deceased, that they were somehow at fault for their own deaths. The truth has emerged. Justice awaits. So on behalf of the government, and indeed our country, I am profoundly sorry that this double injustice has been left uncorrected for so long. Liverpool the city and Liverpool the football club survived Hillsborough. But for a moment, it looked like the football club might not survive the attentions of two Americans. Late 2007, I think it was when it, the wheels really began to come off for people. The team was sold to Tom Hicks and George Gillette. The typical brash American. American robber barons, that is. They had a track record of super risky leverage financing and bad management of sports franchises. Faced with the ruination of their clubs, the fans said, enough is enough. It took something as a catalyst. I think it just built up and built up and built up until we felt a point where, oh, hang on, we, we've all got something to say. We're, we are from Liverpool. Everyone has something to say. Everyone has an opinion. But opinions need to be organised if they're to count. This was the moment that Spirit of Shankly was born, mobilising to get Hicks and Gillette out of Liverpool before they bled it dry, drawing on that widespread sense that whoever holds the deeds, this club belongs to its fans. Shankly, wherever his spirit now resides, was surely nodding in agreement. Hicks and Gillette finally packed their carpet bags in 2010. A US consortium, Fenway Sports Group, bought the club. And though they have proved competent, they are no less commercially minded. In pursuing those commercial aims, they have traded on Liverpool's history, the spirit of Bill Shankly. This is a football club and has a history that is sold on, you know, the fans and the atmosphere. And that's, that, you know, that's changed significantly since the 70s and 80s. How much of that is left, I wondered? I wanted to know if the spirit of solidarity that had mobilised fans in the face of tragedy, corruption and greed was still active in Liverpool today. Or was it just a thing of the past? The question took me to a mosque in Birkenhead, just across the River Mersey from Liverpool. Any specific request for on the menu next week? I'd feel about burgers. Yes! Burgers and some onion things also. This mosque used to be a furniture shop. On a Sunday morning, it's an impromptu canteen, the only place feeding the homeless on a Sunday. The food distributed here was collected by a group of local football supporters, now known as fans supporting food banks. Dave Fitzpatrick, who organises these mornings, might be an Everton fan, but like Shankly, his tongue is only half in his cheek. 
unfortunately it's a British trait of starving people we've seen it happen around the world we've seen Ireland we've seen India and everywhere else that goes with it Dave is a member of fan supporting food banks the group is made up of Liverpool and Everton supporters who take on poverty and hunger in the Liverpool area proud of their cross club collaboration like I say we're a strange city you know John will support Everton but his brother Peter might support Liverpool um, the organisation's tagline is Hunger Doesn't Wear Club Colours. It began two years ago when a couple of fans, one from Liverpool, one from Everton, started collecting food in a wheelie bin outside of a pub on match day. Now, fan-supporting food banks supply a quarter of the food distributed at North Liverpool's food banks. They collect dry goods at every Liverpool and Everton home game and serve hot meals on a Sunday morning. Today, for example, we've done roast chicken, fresh veg and mash for, not just for the home, but for anyone in need of a meal. The chicken was provided by fan support and food banks. The veg was supplied by Carpenters Limited, which is a big local firm. The chicken was cooked in a Christian church. It was brought to a mosque to be fed to the local community by Members of the local community, which is what Fans Support and Food Banks is all about. Liverpool is not alone. Fans Supporting Food Banks now has sister organisations at 30 other clubs throughout England. No surprise, really. All over the UK, homelessness and poverty, especially in-work poverty, has been sharply rising. It's only a couple of miles as the crow flies from Birkenhead to Anfield, but on days like that, they feel like worlds apart. But I've never actually been to Anfield. And with Spurs, my first football love in the form of my life, I thought, why not? We took our seats for the game, and what a game it was. Liverpool were pretty much on top for 80 minutes, and then. Absolute rocket of a volley from outside the area. He's ripped the net out! Victor Wanyama with a screamer for Tottenham! Suddenly it's 1-1 and the place absolutely explodes. About five minutes later, Tottenham get a slightly dodgy penalty. Kane potentially to win it for Tottenham. And unbelievably, Harry Kane, who can't miss a thing and put a foot wrong, steps up and misses it. Your heart sinks, you think, wow, we're actually going to steal this thing in the 87th minute, 2-1. And he misses the penalty. Unthinkable stuff. Inside the last five minutes of what becomes now a melodramatic game at Anfield. Worse, three, four minutes later, and we're now into injury time, Mohamed Salah pops up in front of the Tottenham goal. Salah, dry handball, Salah again. And slots it home. And then the place goes really crazy. The guys in the seats behind had literally toppled over. It was like a kind of Goya painting where you've got loads of distorted figures in black and white tumbling on top of each other. Their mouths agape, their eyes wide. Probably won it for Liverpool in 
stoppage time. And then this Tottenham, the greatest Tottenham team of my life, managed to find a penalty in the fifth minute of injury time. Melodrama. Kane. Last kick. And this time, Harry Kane slots it home. Scores. 2-2. Game over. Absolutely sensational entertainment. Drama and trauma and intrigue and thrill. I loved the game. I loved every single second of it. I loved the whole build-up to the game. I loved being in Anfield. I loved the smell of the place. I loved the sounds. I loved being immersed in its environment and neighbourhood. I don't think there is any unadulterated joy in this world, and in football in particular. You take your pleasures where you can, both sporting and political. And I felt like in Liverpool that day, I took a little bit of both. Next week, we go to India. My guest, Supriya Nair, will fill us in on the nocturnal and solitary existence of being an Italian football fan in a country that would rather be watching cricket. I certainly feel like my definitive connection with AC Milan is broken if I'm not alone in a darkened room, possibly weeping silently into a pillow. Eyes streaming, heart pounding. Ah, wouldn't exchange it for anything else. In the meantime, please check out our website, gameofourlives.fm. Subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. Tell the world. Speaking of which, if you know someone who would like this show, share the joy and tell them. This show is a production of Jetty Studios. The senior producer is Raja Shah. Producer and sound designer, Meredith Hodanot. Our editors are Casey Miner and Karnish Thoreau. Kiana Mogadam does the social media. Graylin Brashear does the audience development. Graphic design is by Sophie Feller. Podcast operations are by Jordan Bailey. Game of Our Lives is recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, England, with engineering by Richard de Mowbray. Our music is from Bang Data. You can hear more from them at bangdata.com. Our executive producer is Judy Kane. And our general manager is Kezar Kantwala. I'm David Goldblatt, and I'll see you next week.